Hello, 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 hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Yes. Yes, testing one, two. Hello, testing one, two. Testing, 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 testing one, two. to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl. It is Thursday, July 29th. On today's show, how we talk about quarterbacks inside of football, the most systemic sport there is. I'm not going to talk about gambling today. There's too much to discuss when it comes to the game of football and quarterbacks. So we're getting to an ad from Traeger Grills, and then we are getting straight to the show. With your masquerading and you Always contemplating what to do in case heaven is found. Hey, come on, baby. Follow me. I'm the fight, fight. Follow me. I'm the fight, fight. And I'll show you where it's at. 
I have been thinking a lot about football recently because we're a month or so out and it's my favorite sport. And also because there's been a lot of quarterback drama with Aaron Rodgers over the last week, who is my favorite player on my favorite team. And when I think of those two things, football and quarterbacking, uh, I start to reflect upon the way that those two things are discussed in unison with one another, which in turn leads me into a, a place that I'm not fully comfortable being, which is my endless fight against rings culture, which I'm convinced will be eternal. There's been points in my life where I think people are starting to grasp that maybe uh, winning is not necessarily everything, and it definitely does not reflect on an individual in a way that we want it to. A uh, player can play well and his team can lose. A player can pay, play poorly and his team can win. All those things are true. All of those things are reality. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily want to engage with the, that idea. I would say more fans than not in present day and more media personalities than not in present day. Uh, they believe that a team win. It also signals a individual triumphing over another individual. It removes all of the nuance that I really like about sports and a specific athletic event. It's why when you hear conversations amongst fans or debates or the way that sports are covered on television, you watch any of the midday programming on ESPN or FS1, you'll see terms thrown around like, it's Brady versus Rodgers in the NFC title game. And then the game ends and Brady has beaten Rodgers. And I'm watching it going, what are, what are we talking about? These two quarterbacks are not playing directly against one another. They're in two very different situations. Uh, within the last time those two played, one played a very good game, Aaron Rodgers, and his team didn't win. And one played not a great game and threw three interceptions and his team won. And a lot of the talking points coming out of that game was, well, this is what the GOAT does. It's why he's a winner. You know, it's why he's better than Rodgers. And I'm sitting here going, well, I thought Rodgers played significantly better football as an individual than Brady did. But yeah, I guess we can ignore that because Tampa Bay beat Green Bay. It's the same thing that we've seen in any other sport. It's LeBron versus Steph, two players who don't play the same position, who don't go head-to-head, -head, who are one of five people on the court at any given time for their own individual teams. <laughs> and I would always get frustrated with the way that that specific rivalry was covered when LeBron's coming up short more times than not. And a lot of talking points early on when the Warriors were playing the Cavs was, is Steph actually a better player than LeBron? And I would go, no, LeBron is the best player. He's just playing on a worse team. And then Durant went to the Warriors and it kind of followed a similar mold. Durant versus LeBron. Durant must be better than LeBron because the Warriors swept the Cavs. And I would go, this is a complete ignorance of situation and how this in individual LeBron is playing. Uh, there's no nuance to talking points like this. It all boils down to who wins from a team perspective, and that's how we grade an individual. There's no nuance. Um, there's no point in having any of these discussions. Even within the Stanley Cup Finals this year, a lot of it was billed as this goaltender battle. Andre Vasilevsky from Tampa versus Carey Price of Montreal. Who's better? And I would go, it's almost impossible to determine the answer to that question, especially from who wins or who loses, because... Tampa's a significantly better hockey team than Montreal. Uh, and when two goaltenders of arguably the same skill sets are playing against one another and one team is significantly better than the other team, you're probably going to think that team's goaltender is better than the others, uh, regardless of how each individual goaltender is actually playing. 
because it's really hard to understand, even for someone like me who really loves hockey and watches it all the time, it's hard to grasp the nuance of what makes a goaltender better versus this other goaltender. If one faces 40 shots and the other faces 25 shots, and that happens every single game, and they have relatively equal skill sets, the one who faces 40 shots is going to look worse over the course of time. That's how this kind of stuff works. Uh, so in Ring's culture, you know, a team win, or, or a team win, it means the best player won, which is never a given. That's something I always talk about on this show. Uh, and part of that culture is if you have more rings, then you're a better player than the player who doesn't have more rings. Uh, for the most part, you know, the logic sometimes can be skewed within this particular debate when I talk with it about other people. So a lot of people will like to say that Jordan is a better player than LeBron because Jordan has six rings and LeBron has four. It's very easy. It's cut and dry. No room for nuance. No room for discussion about individual play. No room for discussion about the situation that Jordan was in with the Bulls versus the situation that LeBron has been throughout his career with the Cavs and the Heat and the Lakers and the Cavs. Um, there's no room for that within a discussion of strictly rings-based, uh, this is who won, this is who lost. But, you know, if you extend it further and you go, well, doesn't Robert Ory have seven rings? Isn't he now a better player than either one of those two? We pump the brakes and we go, well, rings culture only extends so far and that logic will only extend so far. And we can use it sometimes, but we don't necessarily want to use it in other instances. Uh, so John Elway is better than Dan Marino because he has two Super Bowls and Dan Marino has zero. That's how that works. But then you push it further and you go, well, how do you make sense of Trent Dilfer winning a Super Bowl or Joe Flacco winning a Super Bowl? Does that mean that those two quarterbacks are better than the long, long list of really good quality NFL starting quarterbacks? Dan Marino being a great example, who never won a Super Bowl. Is it as cut and dry as that? Would anyone in the right frame of mind ever argue that Trent Dilfer or Joe Flacco is a better quarterback than Dan Marino or any of these people in present day, like a Matt Stafford who have not won one? I don't think so. Yet, sometimes we want to treat the argument as simply that, you know? So now is Eli Manning as good as John Elway and Peyton Manning, his brother, because they all three have two Super Bowl wins? Uh, is that something that we want to believe in? Uh, Rings culture embraces that mindset. That's something I go, no, I, I don't ever believe in that. And there's always room for nuance within a discussion of rings and team wins and individual performance. Uh, that's a great example that I just gave with Eli, John Elway, and Peyton Manning. Because two of those things are two of the best quarterbacks in the history of the NFL. And one of those sticks out like a sore thumb, Eli who is probably going to make the Hall of Fame. Something that is asinine if you go and look at any of his statistics throughout the duration of his career. Individual season statistics, cumulative over the course of his career, none of them look like Hall of Fame resume. Uh, but he's the starting quarterback on two Super Bowl winning teams. And a lot of people like to point to that as a reason why Eli will get into the Hall of Fame. He's the winner. He helped carry these Giants teams to two Super Bowls. Yeah, he never really played good at the quarterback position virtually throughout his entire career, but we don't have to care about that because the rings speak for themselves. That's the mindset behind rings culture. Which is interesting because I kind of like to remember and look back on what actually went into winning those rings. I do that with all players and I do that with teams. I think it's a very interesting way of tracing 
arguments and discussions like this. So I go back to 2007, the defining season of Eli Manning's career when it comes to this particular idea that rings are the only thing that matter. Uh, and it's one of the greatest upsets in the history of the NFL. Giants make the Super Bowl. They play against undefeated New England, trying to go 19-0, uh, the first team in NFL history to do that if they would have won. And instead, Giants, double-digit underdogs, they engineer one of the greatest upsets, not only in the history of the NFL, in the history of sports. And so that's kind of what we remember, and it was incredibly memorable. And Eli Manning was the starting quarterback throughout the regular season, all 16 games, and throughout all four of the playoff games that the Giants played that year. But what I, I think kind of maybe gets pushed to the side is when you go back and look at what went into those games from Eli's perspective, uh, the, the regular season, the Giants make the playoffs as a wildcard team. Eli starts all 16 games, and during that regular season in 2007, he averages 208 yards per game. Not good by any means, and he has a 23 to 20 touchdown to interception ratio. Now that 20 interceptions, that leads the league that year. So... You see a picture of a quarterback, if I put those numbers and attach them to somebody who did not win a Super Bowl, you would say that is not a good quarterback that year. That quarterback did not play well. Stats speak for themselves. They make the playoffs, and the memory for me from that playoff run was defense, 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 especially that defensive line. They were just a whirlwind, and nobody could block them. That really came to manifest itself in the Super Bowl against New England. They were the unit that controlled the terms of engagement in that specific game. It's Strahan, it's Usi Umanyora, uh, it's all these guys that are just continually coming after the passer. So you look at those four playoff games that the Giants played that year, 2007, when Eli Manning wins the Super Bowl. And I say that ironically, knowing that the Giants won the Super Bowl and Eli Manning was the starting quarterback. They played Tampa Bay, 20 for 27, 185 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Very reasonable stat line. Uh, but one, if you attach to a quarterback that didn't win that game, you'd go, eh, that's fine. I mean, but probably just there. Looks like more of a game manager stat than anything. You go to the next game, Dallas. Eli Manning, 12 for 18, 163 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Again, like, fine. It's not bad. He attempted 18 passes in a, in a win. Uh, the key here is not that he's putting out these outrageous stats. The key is the zero on the interception total, which... If you throw zero interceptions and you have a really good supporting cast around you, especially a defense that you can ride like the Giants had, that puts you in position to win. And with the right bounces, you indeed can win, which is what the Giants did that year. You go to the NFC title game against Green Bay. Eli Manning, 21 for 40, 251 yards, zero touchdowns, zero picks. By no means a quality performance from a quarterback, but again, the key is if you throw the inter interceptions, and you have a great defense, then you can possibly win that game, which is what the Giants did that year in overtime of the NFC title game on the road in Lambeau. Against New England, uh, the, again, one of the most famous games in the history of the NFL. Greatest upsets of all time. 19 for 34, 255 yards, two touchdowns, one pick. So again, like these are not terrible games by any means, but if you just looked at them as individual performances, from a statistical perspective, you would say, this, these are just whatever. They're fine. They're not bad. They're not good. The only one that really is not good is the Green Bay game. The other ones, it's just a quarterback who is not throwing picks, is not attempting a ton of passes, and is putting his team in position to, if the sum of its parts are greater than the whole, then they can win a game. 
Uh, it's also ironic that the most famous play of the Super Bowl itself, when they upset New England, is the David Tyree helmet catch. It's Eli Manning running back, and there's about four uncalled holdings on his offensive line as they're tackling this person and taking down this person, and Eli doesn't know what to do. And he lobs up a lollipop into oblivion, and who knows what's going to happen. And David Tyree and Rodney Harrison, the safety for the Patriots, are both jumping and fighting for it. And Tyree pins it against his helmet and falls to the ground, and it's about one centimeter from touching the ground and making it an incomplete pass. And instead, it's the iconic moment of that game. It's pure random luck, chance, whatever you want to call it. The refs don't want to call holding. Fine, that's great. Uh, Eli Manning throws what amounts to a Hail Mary. Great. David Tyree makes a catch that turns him from a complete unknown into a name that everybody now recognizes, despite the fact that he never really did anything before since in his career. That's all the stuff that goes into a win, that goes into a Super Bowl win. And if it goes in your favor and you're the starting quarterback, a lot of the way that people like to discuss uh, that particular phenomenon is, well, now you are an all-time quarterback because you won a Super Bowl. And there's no room for the nuance that I really like when it comes to discussing quarterback play in football. So I want to read a quote that comes from Michael Rosenberg of Sports Illustrated uh, that was written as this Rogers drama is going on with Green Bay, but it speaks to this particular thing, uh, this quarterbacking in football and the way that we really like to discuss that that might not be rooted in reality. There are fundamental differences between the NFL and NBA that limit an individual's power. It is impossible for a player to form a super team in football. Winning teams need too many good players, and turning over a whole roster in an offseason is not feasible. Free agency is harder to reach because of the franchise tag, and doing so comes at a greater risk because players have to turn down guaranteed money in a high-risk sport. Free agency is also fundamentally less appealing in football than in basketball because switching teams is harder. Kevin Durant and LeBron James were going to be superstars no matter where they played. But even a great quarterback like Rodgers needs a scheme and complementary pieces that are suited to him. As agent Lee Steinberg says, football is the most systemic game there is, end quote. So I want to extrapolate that final line and take it further. Football, uh, the most systemic game there is. Something that I believe to be very obvious, and I think anybody who watches football a lot also believes to be very obvious. But then we get wrapped up in this whirlwind discussion of rings and quarterbacking and, and who's better than who because of the rings. And we completely lose sight of this really simple fact. Rings culture doesn't make sense, or it doesn't make sense in any sport, but it makes even less sense in football because, again, according to Steinberg, and in my opinion, also true, football is the most systemic game there is. So NFL, yeah, it's, talk, or it's constantly talked about in terms of the quarterback. But we all know that a quarterback is a tiny sliver of what impacts a game. Look back at 2007 Eli Manning had Super Bowl run for the New York Giants. Uh, the quarterback, they don't coach, they don't catch, they don't block, they don't play defense, they don't play special teams. They don't referee. They don't do any of these things. They don't control the weather. Go down the list. I could go on and on and on about the things that affect a football game that a quarterback has absolutely no ability to control whatsoever. So yes, it is the most impactful position in the sport, but it still represents just a tiny fraction of whether or not your team is going to win or lose. So I, I want to kind of examine some of the quarterbacks in present day. 
through the lens of what I'm talking about. I'll start with Russell Wilson. And when he came into the league, uh, the Seahawks did not expect him to be their starting quarterback. They just signed Matt Flynn from the Packers. They thought he was going to be the starter. Russell Wilson comes in on a rookie contract. He wins the battle in camp. Now he is the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks and what comes to be known as the Legion of Boom, one of the best secondaries that the NFL has ever seen. So Russell Wilson on a rookie contract, normally a position that you're paying a ton of money for, it allows Seattle to pump a ton of money into their defense in a way that virtually no other team can because it's really hard to find a third-round rookie quarterback and pay them pennies on the dollar compared to every other team paying their quarterback. You have a lot more money against a cap. So now they're pumping money into their defense, and you have Richard Sherman, you have Earl Thomas, you have Cam Chancellor, you have Brandon Browner, you have Michael Bennett. You have one of the all-time defenses in 2013. One of the very best defenses I've ever watched in my life, that Legion of Boom Seattle defense. They go on to play Denver in the Super Bowl that year. They smash them. 43-8. Denver, which going into that Super Bowl, had put together one of the very best statistical seasons an offense had ever put together in the history of football. And they had no answers for what Seattle was doing on defense. So this is kind of where the reputation of Wilson begins as this high-level winning quarterback which at the time I was watching and, and thought that's kind of strange because it ignores that this team is all about defense. And Wilson is good by, by no means will I argue otherwise, but he is put in a position of we essentially need to be a game manager. We need you to not turn the ball over and play smart football and we can ride this defense to a Super Bowl victory and the following year uh, within uh, Russell Wilson interception at the goal line of two Super Bowls in two years. So within that 2013 Super Bowl run, I go back and I look at Wilson's stats from that particular Super Bowl uh, championship run. They played New Orleans in the playoffs. They beat them by eight. Russell Wilson in that game, nine for 18, 103 yards, zero touchdowns, zero picks. Just a total blech performance. You'd never, ever in a million years talk about that as a good quarterback performance. They beat San Francisco in the NFC title game. Very memorable a game that Richard Sherman's screaming after to Aaron Andrews about Michael Crabtree. They beat San Fran by six in that game. Russell Wilson, 16 for 25, 215 yards, one touchdown, no picks. A lot of, lot of parallels between that 2007 Eli Manning run and what Russell Wilson was doing in 2013. Ride your defense, throw zero interceptions, and we can win. Denver in the Super Bowl, they obviously beat him by 35 points, just a runaway uh, Russell Wilson, 18 for 25, 206 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. That's where this talking point about Russell Wilson being uh, just a, a consummate winner and he's there to win and he's better than these other quarterbacks who haven't won really becomes strange because I go, well, you know, this isn't a knock on Wilson. Again, he did what was asked of him during this particular year, 2013. He didn't throw interceptions in the playoffs. He managed the game correctly for Seattle. He handed the ball off to Marshawn Lynch. And that defense, which was incredible, went and squeezed the life out of all three opponents that they played in the playoffs. That's a, a direct contrast to the way that I think we talk about quarterbacks and we talk about which quarterbacks are better than other quarterbacks. Russell Wilson has a ring. Well, in 2013, that meant he was better than quarterbacks X, Y, and Z because he had the Legion of Boom at his back, which is very strange. And something that, again, I always disagree with when it comes to rings culture and how we talk about it. So 
you look at the lone Super Bowl run of Russell Wilson's career. As of present day, he's won one Super Bowl still, which is great. It's very hard to win a Super Bowl. Aaron Rodgers has one Super Bowl. Drew Brees has one Super Bowl. Go down the list of all these great quarterbacks. But this lone Super Bowl run of Wilson's career, it also doubles as one of the most paltry statistical stretches of his own uh, in the playoffs. Uh, which is funny as we fast forward over the following years into present day in 2021, and you look at how he has played in the playoffs, and you look at how he has played within the regular season, uh, and he's grown immensely as a quarterback since 2013 into 2021. However, as that's happened, and his statistics have really gone through the roof, and from the eye test, his play has really gone through the roof. He's improved as a passer. His understanding of how to read defenses and how to play as a quarterback, it's also greatly improved. And for the last five years, he's been one of the best quarterbacks in football. That was not the case in 2013. Um, I did not believe that. I think a lot of people who follow football did not believe that, despite the fact that the Seahawks have won the Super Bowl. But the way that Wilson has been talked about has kind of shifted. The way that we talked about him in 2013 was, all right, winner, one of the best quarterbacks. And Seattle's roster starts to slowly fall apart around him. And that defense dissipates and breaks off and goes elsewhere. And now Seattle has a significantly less talented roster around Wilson. And he's asked to do a lot more because he has to out of necessity in order for Seattle to go 10 and 6 and make the playoffs as a wild card compared to back in the day when they could go 12 and 4 with him throwing for 180 yards in a game. But the talking points have shifted and now... A lot of people like to nitpick Wilson and go, well, yeah, you know, back when he was winning, that was great. Uh, but they, they haven't won since 2013, and he holds on the ball too long, and he takes too many sacks, and sometimes he tries to force too many throws. And I go, well, yes, that's dictated by his situation. He has to do those things because Seattle's team is not as good around him as they once were. And so... Wilson, as a worse quarterback, could go 12-4 and four every season, and now Wilson is a better quarterback can go 10 and 6 or 9 and 7 because the situation has shifted around him. Um, so Wilson wins a Super Bowl as a worse quarterback than he is in present day. It's a true testament to this idea of football being the most systemic game there is and the way that that particular idea is pushed to the side when we boil it down simply to who has won a Super Bowl and who has not. All right, then we're going to give a thumbs up to that person and we're going to give a thumbs down to the other. Uh, Tom Brady. The winningness quarterback in the history of football. He's also a great example of just kind of the way that we talk about quarterbacks and football. Because he is regarded by many as the best quarterback in NFL history. I'm not one of those people because I will always separate an individual's performance from their team's success. And so while I do believe Brady is one of the all-time quarterbacks and a great talent and his longevity is incredible, all of the things that are said about Tom Brady, uh, yeah, I believe that I've watched better quarterbacks in my life than Tom Brady. But he is an all-time example of when talent meets the perfect situation that you can rule football for, in this case, a long period of time, nearly two decades. Because the pairing of Brady and Belichick uh, it can't be underestimated how valuable having two people like that, uh, one of the best quarterbacks in the league every single year that he's playing up until the last few years, and the very best coach football has ever seen. That in and of itself was worth double-digit wins every year, division titles every single year, Super Bowl after Super Bowl after Super Bowl over the course of 2000 to 
2020 or 2019 before he leaves Tampa Bay. And Brady's the one who really gets uh, the majority of the credit when it comes to that because he's the quarterback because we talk about quarterbacks, uh, which is also a little bit strange because when you bookmark the stretch of Brady's career with New England, it starts with the first Super Bowl win when Brady is there as the game manager. He's essentially what Wilson was in 2013 for the Legion of Boom. And the story of that game at the time was Bill Belichick and this defense create an all-time game plan. They're playing the St. Louis Rams. They shut down the greatest show on turf, one of the greatest offenses in the history of football. Kurt Warner, Isaac Bruce, Torrey Holt, Marshall Falk. They shut them down. They hold them to 17 points. That's the story of that game. That's the first Super Bowl win for New England. All that stuff completely out of the control of the quarterback. Uh, that's bookended by New England's final Super Bowl win with Brady and Belichick. Same opponent, the Rams. They've now moved to Los Angeles, but a similar story. Uh, Sean McVay, coach of the Rams. He's got this new, fresh, hottest offense in the NFL. Jared Goff, Todd Gurley's an MVP candidate. And they're coming into the Super Bowl and Bill Belichick and that defense. They put together the perfect game plan. They completely flummox what the Rams are doing on offense. They hold them to three points. Brady and the New England offense, they put a, a whopping 13 points on the board to win that game by 10 points. Again, things that are out of control of the quarterback, but these are two Super Bowl wins that go into this kind of, in my opinion, myth that, well, yes, because Brady is the winningest quarterback, because all of these things that are situation dependent have been in his favor, well, there's no room for discussion about who the best quarterbacks in the history of football are. It's just Brady. You're a dumbass if you think otherwise. And I go, I mean, that doesn't align with what I've watched. You know, there are seasons that I've watched from other quarterbacks that I just, I think they've played the position better than Brady has. And I think to Brady's credit, uh, uh, combined with his talent, he understands that football is the most systemic game there is. In his last season in New England, I think he looks around and identifies, I don't have a lot of help on the offensive side of the ball. I don't have a lot of weapons. Seems like our roster, it's just, it's not that good relative to other rosters. And the combination of Brady being there, but more importantly, just that coaching staff and what Belichick does, they piecemeal together uh, still a good season. Uh, they win double-digit games again. They make the playoffs, all that kind of stuff. But it's a roster that's held together mostly by phenomenal coaching. And I think Brady looked at that and said, all right, I am dependent upon what is around me, which has always worked to my advantage in the past because I've had Belichick in place, who has milked everything out of this roster continually since 2001 when we won our first Super Bowl. And we've won a million Super Bowls together because of that. But in present day, I need to think about the present because I'm old, because I'm 43 or whatever he is at this point. And I kind of have to play it year by year because I don't know how many years I have left playing. So let's look around the league because I'm a free agent. And what situation might be better suited to me to win a Super Bowl this year? And Brady, being the smart person he is, he honed in on Tampa Bay. And he looked at that roster, one of, if not the most loaded rosters in football that had been held back by Jameis Winston, throwing 30 interceptions his final season there. And he said, hmm, I, if I go in there, and I don't throw 30 interceptions. I have the best combination of lines at my disposal between the offense and the defense. I have incredible talent at every single level of the defense. Line, linebacker, secondary. I have possibly the best combination of skill players in football. I got Mike Evans out there. I got Chris Godwin. I got Antonio Brown. I'll bring Gronk with me. 
Uh, and if I go into that situation and play within the framework of this system that Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich have in place, then we could be a very competitive team and win a Super Bowl. And, and that proved to be true. So you switch the situation, and Brady, the quarterback who I think a lot of people were going, eh, he's not very good and he's on his way out of the league because his final season in New England was not very good. He did not look like a very good quarterback. He jumps to Tampa, and he throws 16 more touchdowns. And his yards per attempt jumps by a full yard, an immense jump over the course of one season to the next. His QBR it jumps from 17th best in the league, his final season with New England, to 9th best in the league with Tampa last year. And that was reflected in virtually every advanced statistic. Last year in New England, he's either middling or on the back half of starting quarterbacks in football. And last year in Tampa, because the situation changed and because he had one of the best rosters in football at his disposal, he jumps up to around, you know, the 10th best quarterback in football, which you put the 10th best quarterback in football on a loaded roster and you have a perennial Super, super Bowl contender every single year. But as I've talked about on this show before, even during that Super Bowl run, uh, you look at Brady's individual performance and you go, he threw for 200 yards against the Saints and he threw for 200 yards against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, and he threw three picks against Green Bay in the NFC title game. But none of that mattered because in a systemic game, you can have a quarterback play either poorly or just bleh. And if the situation around them is good enough, they will rise up and take over, and you can still win doing that. Uh, I'll go back to yesterday's show, which was all about Aaron Rodgers. And I mentioned within that show about this change in perception of Rodgers from 2018 to 2020. Last season with Mike McCarthy, a roster that was not really that good. And the jump in perception from that year to last year, 2020. And how many things changed around him that caused people to say, well, Rodgers is good at quarterbacking again. And I would say, no, he's been the same quarterback pretty much the entirety of his career. And if you arm him with a new coach in Matt LaFleur rather than Mike McCarthy, and you have a bolstered offensive line, which was one of the best in football uh, until Bakhtiari got injured at the very end of the season last year, you get the emergence of Devontae Adams at receiver and Aaron Jones at tailback. And going back to LaFleur, you have a real live NFL offense that's cutting edge and not just something pulled out of a caveman's cave from prehistoric times like Mike McCarthy was running. Well, then you have a dude who in 2018 was 16th in QBR and was first in QBR last year, who was the MVP of football, who you look at any advanced statistic and from 2018 to 2020, he went from middle of the pack to the very best in football. Um, this is one of the things that I always talk about and reflect on with Roger's career because I've watched all of his snaps and all of his games and I always go, man, if he had a different situation, I would love to hear how the public talks about Aaron Rodgers because the Packers have done him, they've given him short shrift when it comes to installing a winning system and winning team around him throughout his career. And I go, man, what would Rodgers look like if he was backed by the Legion of Boom, like Wilson had had? Or what would he look like if he was backed by those Ravens defenses that carried first Dilfer to a title, you know, 20-some-odd years ago, and then Flacco to a title a decade later? 
Or what would he look like if he was backed by that Giants defense that Manning rode to a couple Super Bowls? Or you go to the other side of the ball, what would he look like if he was paired with Sean Payton inside a dome? Sean Payton, cutting-edge offensive mind his entire career. Could you even imagine the statistics that Rodgers would put up if he was in a situation like Drew Brees has had his whole career? Uh, and the biggest question of all, one that I think a lot of people enjoy talking about, and for good reason, is what would Rodgers' career look like from a team perspective and how then that would reflect on individual discussions about him if he'd been paired with someone like Bill Belichick since he became starter in the league. Uh, situation within a systemic game is virtually everything. I'm sure there are a million quarterbacks who back in the 80s are going, what I wouldn't give to have Montana's situation with George Walsh and the Niners. And I'm sure a million quarterbacks are sitting there in the 90s going, what I wouldn't have to, or what I wouldn't give to have Troy Aikman's situation with the Cowboys handing off to Emmett Smith and throwing to Michael Irvin and having that defense at my back. Yeah, I could probably win three Super Bowls in four years too. All of this stuff, it just goes back to, you know, that, in my opinion, simple, basic idea that a lot of people will acknowledge as an independent idea that football is the most systemic game there is, but then we get separated away from that in the way that it's analyzed, um, especially when it comes to quarterbacks. And that's why I always get so frustrated when I talk about these things. So we go into this upcoming season and change in situation is one of the things that I'm always most interested to watch when it comes to quarterbacks. It's probably the most interesting thing about the NFL every single season going in for me. That's why I've talked about Matt Stafford on this show multiple times and why I think it's very interesting to watch a guy who has been in a total losing situation his entire career since being drafted number one in 2009 by the Detroit Lions. Now he is with Sean McVay. Now he is in a cutting edge offense. Now he has talent around him. What's that going to look like? It's exciting. I don't know, but I, I trust that the perception of Stafford it possibly could change just based upon the fact that he switched teams. It's why watching rookie quarterbacks and young quarterbacks in general is always so interesting because we don't necessarily know who of these new batch of quarterbacks look at this year's rookie class, your Trevor Lawrence, your Zach Wilson, your Trey Lance, your Mac Jones, your Justin Fields, who of these people are going to emerge because of or in spite of their situation. In spite of, that's the transcendent quarterbacks. There are very few in the history of football who can emerge and be successful in spite of. So then it turns into, all right, a lot of these people are dependent upon their situation. Which of these situations for these rookie quarterbacks are going to be good? What are the Jags going to look like? What are the Jets going to look like? The Niners, the Bears, the Patriots. And whose situation is going to submarine the quarterbacks that are there within it? Uh, you, you have to look no further than the 2018 draft class. Again, something I've talked about on this show to see how many times we can flip-flop on who is good and who is bad simply because the situation changes and their team is now successful. You look back at that class, you got Sam Darnold, you got Josh Allen, you got Lamar Jackson. We've flip-flopped on all those people a million times. We flip-flopped on Baker Mayfield, the number one quarterback drafted, the number one overall pick in that draft. We flip-flopped on him. I'm reading stuff the other day, just going over you know, NFL training camp, who's doing this, who's doing that, and I come across a paragraph about Baker Mayfield when it comes to last season that I found to be very interesting because Baker Mayfield, first he celebrated his rookie season, then the Browns are bad and we go, he's terrible. And then last year, the Browns rise and they make the playoffs. They win their first playoff game and who the hell knows how long. And now we're back to, is Baker good again? And I come across this from Jake Trotter of ESPN. 
Last season, Mayfield finished in the top 10 in QBR while quarterbacking the Browns to their first playoff victory in 26 years and improving throughout the season. In fact, from week 7 to week 15, only Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers, the last two MVPs, ranked ahead of Mayfield in QBR. Mayfield now seems primed to build off the breakout campaign. This was the first offseason he didn't have to learn a new playbook or adjust to a different head coach. He has a scheme that fits his skill set. He and coach Kevin Stefanski share a tremendous rapport, and the entire offense around him from last season returns. That continuity is a big reason why he could take another big leap, end quote. You see it reflected in that paragraph. You know, this talk of, well, he's actually had a tumultuous career. He's learning new playbooks every year, new coaches. I think that stuff gets discounted a lot into how it would affect a quarterback. And now Baker has his best season last year. And coming to this year, there's more reasons to be optimistic because all this stuff, coach, offense returns around him, and that continuity, which again is a big, big deal when it comes to quarterbacking. It's the story of many quarterbacks throughout the history of football. So you go back and you look at all this intrigue and you look at all these questions going into this year, and it's part of why I'm so excited for football, and it's part of why I wanted to record the show when it comes to the analyzation and the discussion surrounding quarterbacks and surrounding football. Going to the season, I mentioned all those names, and there's more, you know. How good can last year's crop be? Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, two quarterbacks that I love watching that were awesome. Burrow until he was injured, and Herbert for the duration of that season. How good can those guys be? What are going to be put in place to help quarterbacks like them succeed? What are going to be put in place for all those other quarterbacks I mentioned? The rookies, Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, the quarterbacks from 2018. What's going to be built around them? Lamar, Josh Allen, all these people, all these young quarterbacks, the most talented era of young quarterbacks that the league has ever, gone, or that the league has ever seen. What is going to be put around them to make those quarterbacks succeed and what quarterbacks are going to succumb to the lack of that being put around them? These are all the questions. And most importantly, for the purposes of today's show, how long will people continue believing that a, a debate about individual quarterbacks in football, the most systemic sport in existence, can be solved simply by who wins or who loses? 